In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been writing about and talking about on the Art of Manliness for the past decade. Head over to strenuouslife.co to learn more information about the program. We flesh it completely out there. While you're there, put your name on our email waiting list. We got our last enrollment for 2019 coming up here the first week of September. We'll send you an email when enrollment opens up. Strenuouslife.co. Hope to see you there. here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, I am really excited about today's podcast. Uh, on the show today, we have Robert Greene, the New York Times bestselling author of several books. You probably heard of some of them, The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, and The 50th Law. And his most recent book is called Mastery. And in this book, Robert Greene explores what it takes to become a master in any, in any domain or field in life. And he does this by exploring the lives of great men from history, men who achieved mastery in their lifetime, men like Da Vinci and Darwin and Henry Ford, um, and more and more recent one, Paul Graham. And he talks about what the, the path that these men followed to become masters in their domain. Um, and so listen in. It's going to be it's an interesting conversation as Robert Greene and I discuss mastery. Well, Robert, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Brett. My pleasure. So let's talk about Mastery, this book of yours. How did it come about? Um, was it the idea for it, sort of an aha inspiration uh, thing, or was it more of a slow burn? It was both. Um, I'd been starting in 1996 when I began work on the 48 Laws of Power. I've been sort of immersed in the world of power, re researching, you know, the most masterful, powerful people in history. And then as my books kind of gained momentum, I started working as a consultant, um, you know, interacting with very powerful people. And um, somewhere along the line, I, I, maybe around 2005, 2006, this idea started brewing in my head that, that these, what, what these people shared um, was a quality after so many years of of working in a field, whether it could be warfare and strategy or the arts or politics, that their minds had elevated to this other level where they had this kind of fingertip feel um, for what they were doing, a sort of what I call ended up calling high-level intuition, and it intrigued me. Nobody really writes a book about this. It's almost as if it doesn't exist or it's or it's impossible to sort of explain or describe and I wanted to really explain and describe it the only the book that comes closest perhaps that some people point out is like outliers but uh, it didn't really I didn't find that book satisfying to me as far as 
an irrational explanation of why people have this high-level creativity and intuition, like a Mozart or a Darwin or even today a Steve Jobs. And so that's the book was brewing in my head that way. But the aha moment occurred as I began research on it. And um, I was delving deeply into the biographies of all of these, these powerful people. And it became clear to me that what they all shared, uh, what was sort of the the seed from which all of this grew was the was the fact that they pursued what I end up calling the life's task, that you could take every single one of these masters, past or contemporary, and you could find almost the same narrative, that they were deeply in touch um, with something about themselves, something that makes them unique, some idea or activity or problem they wanted to solve that could be traced back to their earliest years and because they were so clear about what they wanted to accomplish they were able to go through a process they were able to be patient to have so much energy and passion for what they were doing that they would spend the 10 or 20 years necessary to reach mastery and discovering that um, was sort of my aha yeah, well, let's talk. Well, we're going to talk more about that process in a bit. And the thing that struck me about your book, so you highlight uh, and do go into the biographical sketches of some great uh, individuals from history. You know, you mentioned Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin. And I think most people, when they look at those types of individuals, they think, well, they were just born or destined for that. They're naturally inclined to gain mastery. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is that, is, is there something to that? Is mastery something genetic or is it accessible to anybody who wants to take on the task? Well, it's, it's such an irritating concept to me, this idea that people are born that way. We live in a very scientific world, a very rational world in which we try to explain things, we try to quantify them. And when you reduce it to an argument like people are born that way, it just becomes something purely mystical. How can I how can anybody argue that way? There's nothing you can verify. But in fact, when you look at the stories of these people, as I did deeply, and other people have, it's not just my research alone, you can trace a very, very definite process that leads to the 10,000 hours, the 20,000 hours, and a, and a genuine change in level of thinking and consciousness, which we would I would call um, mastery. So... There's nothing, it's not a fact that a, a Mozart is born that way. I worked very hard in the book to completely debunk that. If you come away from my book still believing in that, then you haven't read it. I show you very clearly how a genius like Mozart went through a process um, and how intensely he studied and how his incredible work at an early age came through years of practice. The genetic component, and there is a genetic component, it's an extremely important genetic component, is that every one of us um, is physiologically, biologically, neurologically born unique. Um, Our DNA is unique. Uh, The way our brains are configured is completely unique. And this shows itself at a very early age, and I believe in everyone, by the fact that we're drawn to particular activities in a way that is completely ourselves, completely individual. And that could be sports, math, science, 
whatever it is. It's not something obvious when you're four or five years old, and I make it very clear in the book that it's not like you have an epiphany and when you're five that you're going to be a fireman or a writer or whatever. It's, it's a lot vaguer than that. It's pre-verbal. But these, in, what I call primal inclinations, exist in every single individual. They're like a genetic marker that this is what makes you unique. Um, our culture thrives on people who sort of mind this uniqueness and become highly creative. I believe there's actually a purpose for this uniqueness. And so that genetic, that's the genetic component. And masters, geniuses, highly creative people are just simply more in touch with that genetic component, with that uniqueness. Um, they're aware early on that they have this incredible love for music. Or I, I like recently the example of Tiger Woods. He He's 11 months or 14 months old, and he's in the garage of his father who's hitting golf balls, um, plastic golf balls in the garage, and, and the, the baby's eyes are lighting up like, I, I've got to do this. This is so exciting to me. I, I believe everybody has those moments, but what separates a genius and a master from others is we lose touch with it. We, we, become, we start hearing what our parents say, what other people say. We lose touch with what makes us different or an individual, and, and that's the, the, the dividing line between genius and not genius. Hmm. So mastery, it's accessible to everybody. It's democratic. Uh, it's accessible to all. Not everyone's going to reach it because not everyone's going to take the steps. Um, but let's talk about kind of the overarching steps. What's the big picture of gaining mastery? What's this process that you discovered with all these individuals? Well, um, the process is actually relatively simple, um, but it's not. It's going to take years to get there, um, and it starts with what I already laid out, and it's the most important step. If you don't take this first step, there's no mastery that will come, and it is being very clear about what makes you different, what excites you in the world, and creating a career path at an early age, or even later, it happens to people later in life, it even happened to me later in life, carving a career path that meshes with something deeply personal, something you want to do, something you want to accomplish. From there, you enter an apprenticeship phase. Um, generally, it's equivalent to your 20s, but it can you know, blend into later ages, depends, or it can start earlier. And it's a five to ten year process. Um, it's been demonstrated in all kinds of interesting studies. It was sort of um, encapsulated in the Middle Ages in an actual apprenticeship phase that young uh, men usually would go through, generally around seven years. And it basically means the period in which you learn the skills, the rules of the game, um, and everything else that it's involved in excelling in a particular craft or profession. And I explain in great depth uh, the kind of attitude and mindset that a real master has in this apprenticeship phase. We all go through apprenticeship phase, but some people maximize it. They really exploit it. They learn more deeply. They accumulate a high number of skills. They learn how to fit in and work in a group environment, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a good apprenticeship and there's a bad apprenticeship. And I want to show you how to go through the right one. As part of that apprenticeship, you want to attach yourself to a mentor, if possible. Um, and I have a, a chapter on that subject. 
the reason I go into that is uh, it's the one thing that will help you shorten the process. If we're talking about 10 to 20,000 hours, 10 to 20 years of working at something, having a person there who can watch you in real time and say, this is what you're good at, this is what you're bad at, these are the mistakes I made, here's how to avoid them, it's, it's just absolutely invaluable. And I demonstrate in the book how the human brain is designed from learning in that kind of particular relationship. As part of the apprenticeship, I also talk about social intelligence, learning how to work with other people. It's not just being technically pr proficient at your field and having a lot of knowledge. We are social animals, and you know have to, have to learn how to work with people. Those are the three components of that apprenticeship phase. I go into very great detail in that. And at a certain point in that phase, you start um, – moving towards the next phase it's kind of a transitional thing where you begin to experiment with your knowledge that you've gained and become a little more creative with it entering what i call the creative active phase which could be anywhere from after 10 years of of this apprenticeship or a little bit less and in that phase you start taking the knowledge you've accumulated and experimenting with it trying things out starting your own project and bringing that individual, that unique quality that you have into play, which was sort of lying dormant during the apprenticeship phase. And I give many examples and stories of how people have used, have, have maximized this phase because there's a lot of dangers. A lot of people never become creative or experimental with what they've learned. They just become conservative with it. And so I go into detail about what I call creative strategies <clears throat> and if you stick with this long enough, if you if you retain that kind of youthful, playful attitude towards what you're studying, uh, but you remain disciplined, after enough time you enter the final phase of mastery where you have this intuitive feel. Um, and I describe in detail where that comes from, why it happens, and how it feels. So that's pretty much the overview of the process that I described. Well, very good. The part that really st st stuck out to me, it resonated with me the most um, in the book was the apprenticeship phase. Yeah. Um, because the process you lay out in the apprenticeship, apprenticeship phase, you, know, you get great details, great, give good, great examples. It seems so contrary to what you see in popular success literature today. You know, today it's all about, you know, how you can hack the system and how you can, you know, get success as fast as you can. But the apprenticeship is a, it's a, a slow process where it's filled with lots of observation. Um, it's sort of in a lot of ways, some, sometimes passive, you know, you have to be yep. learning and reading. I mean, why, why is it so important that you don't take a shortcut? I mean, is, I mean, can, is it possible to get to the next step without going through the apprenticeship phase? No, it's absolutely 150% impossible, and the idea that you think you can have a shortcut means you're never going to reach mastery. You've got a problem. And I lay out the case that the human brain evolved over, we can make it, it's arbitrary where we begin the process, but five million years ago, our earliest ancestors, and it evolved in a particular way, and it evolved in the direction of the more you focus on something, the longer you spend learning something, the higher level of skill that you have, the more you understand the reality of what you're studying. And that brain 
evolved that way through all sorts of twists and turns, the invention of language, civilization, etc. And the idea that at, because of technology, because of the internet in the last 10, 20 years, you could somehow bypass five million years of evolution is just laughable. And anybody who believes that, I'm sorry to say, but they're losers. <laughs> and you're, you're moving against what uh, the science, the evolution, the biology, everything else. You're, 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 you're not in touch with reality. And there are a lot of people who are not simply in touch with reality. And the point of it is, um, is that the apprenticeship phase Okay, it's going to take time. Okay, it's slow. Um, but it's also deeply pleasurable. Um, the sense that you're slowly conquering, you're uh, moving past your own limitations is deeply empowering. So just take a simple example. Let's just say you're learning to play the piano. Um, obviously, in our world today, what we're learning is going to be a little bit more complex or different. But you're learning the piano. In the beginning, it's kind of boring. Um, you're, you're, you're kind of having to repeat the same exercises over and over again, and what you're playing isn't that interesting. And if you stick with it, after six months, you start to play things that are more interesting. And because they're more interesting, you practice a little bit harder. And because you practice a little bit harder, you learn faster. And you start entering what I call a cycle of accelerated returns, where you're starting to see more and more quickly the rewards for your work and your discipline. So not only are you learning the piano, but you're mastering yourself. You're overcoming your own impatience, your own weaknesses. You're gaining discipline, patience, the ability to persist at something. You're learning the piano and you're mastering yourself and you feel it. You feel it inside. You feel like you're overcoming this limitation one barrier after another barrier after another barrier. So that five, ten years of what some people might say, oh my God, how boring, I just want to you know, learn how to do something in six months, it's actually really pleasurable and it's actually a deeply satisfying process and I want to get people, because human beings don't do things that are painful, we, we, we shy away from things that just seem to involve too much pain and people aren't going to go through the process unless they see a reward. And there is a reward. And it's something that people have been experiencing for thousands. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating. But finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. 
If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor Meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. That's code MANLINESS50 at factormeals.com slash MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. Check it out today, and make sure to check out the Creamy Pesto Pork Chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Years, there are incredible rewards to this, but there's also a lot of drudgery involved as well. Um, so I want to get people past the idea that everything has to be immediately pleasurable. The, the fulfillment that you have takes time, but the rewards are much deeper than the reward that you would get from taking a drug or playing a video game. 
We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. If you've made a goal for yourself to read the great books of the Western world, but have had trouble following through with it, check out Online Great Books. It's an online platform. You sign up. They're going to mail you a physical copy of the book you're going to read. So if you're reading Republic that month, they're going to send you a physical copy of Plato's Republic. You're going to read it. They're going to give you a reading schedule, send you reminders so you keep pace with your reading. You'll be assigned to a class where you can discuss the book in the form. And at the end of the month, you'll have a video seminar where you can talk about this in real time. It's a great way. You have accountability. Plus, you have someone to talk to about this stuff and sort through this and think through it. So if you'd like to check this out, go over to onlinegreatbooks.com. And when you're ready to sign up, use code AOM at checkout to save 25% off your first three months. Again, onlinegreatbooks.com, code AOM at checkout to save 25% off your first three months. And now back to the show. It seems like many of the people that you highlighted in the book, uh, we mentioned a few, Mozart or Tiger Woods, uh, they got their start on the path towards mastery at a very young age. Tiger Woods, as young as 14 months. Mozart was, what, two or three years old when he began yeah. um, composing music. Um, what about people who don't begin their path towards mastery later in life? Because it is a long process. The apprenticeship phase lasts from five to 10 years. Um, you know, then you have that, your face, that phase when you're kind of becoming, being creative with what you've learned. People who get started later in life, you mentioned you got started later in life. How does that process lay, play out? Um, you know, you have such, you know, life is fleeting, you know, how, how, how do you take advantage of the, the, this process you've laid out when you get started later? Well, what happened with me uh, a little bit is I, I knew early on in life that I wanted to be a writer. So it's not quite that I was totally at loss uh, at sea here. Uh, but I just didn't know what I wanted to write, so I struggled and and had a lot of ups and downs. So I began in journalism. I didn't like it. I went into other things. I tried to write fiction. Then I went into Hollywood. And so by, it wasn't until I was 35, 36 that I was given an opportunity, and it suddenly became clear to me that what I was meant to do was to write the kind of books that I was that I ended up writing. So. You know, I didn't finish the 48 Laws of Power, my first book, until I was about 38. So that's a pretty bit much of a, a, a later start. Everybody's different. Everybody's unique. And everybody has a different sort of path. So there's the – at one extreme, there are the Mozarts at four years old and Tiger Woods. There are other people who in their college years, it starts to become clear that this is what they love and they, they go into that profession. Other people, and I highlight them in the book, go through their 20s and they're really not very clear about it at all. Um, and there's, there's different types and there's different ways to approach that. Um, there, I, I, I highlight a, a man, uh, one of the masters, Paul Graham, who's the... Um, the genius behind a, a company called Y Combinator, which is a apprenticeship system for people who want to do a tech startup, mm -hmm. massively successful. And Paul Graham was a total hacker, heavily into computers. And throughout his 20s, he didn't really know what it is he wanted to do. He knew he had a love of computers, uh, but what, he, what, what, he's, what was he going to do with that? Um, so he kept learning. He kept trying different things. He actually went into art. Um, and then finally, an opportunity came for him to, to develop something uh, for Netscape in the 90s that turned into a $50 million business. But the lesson from him and the lesson from me is that in those early years in the 20s, you're accumulating skills. You're not wasting your time. You're not 
playing games or trying all sorts of different things that have no connection to you have to be aware to some extent of what it is that you love, but you're not exactly sure how to apply it. Um, and that's what you want to be doing in your 20s. You don't have to exactly decide on the, exact, on the nature of your, of your career path. If you're in your 40s or 30s or 40s and you still haven't figured it out, you're in a different position. It's a little trickier. And I talk about it in, in interviews and in the book about how to get back to what it was you were meant to do. You've lost your way is basically what we have to say here. You, you ended up in law, for instance, because your parents said that and because it seemed lucrative. You're now 38, and you're, you're burned out. It doesn't connect to you in any personal way, and you're struggling. You've got to find your way back to what it is that you were meant to do. And I tell people, if you're in your late 30s or early 40s, you never want like a 100, uh, 360 or 180 degree change in your career. You don't want to suddenly stop law and pick up the guitar and become a rock star because that's what you're meant to do. That's ridiculous. That's not the real world. You want to take the skills you've accumulated in law or whatever it is and now begin to apply them in a way that's more suited towards your path. You want to carve a very realistic path that's heading in another direction. And I, I tell people the story, I told it several times already, of a woman I met who had that scenario. She went into law. It wasn't right for her. She knew she wanted to be a writer. She realized that in her 30s. So she got out of the legal practice that she was in, and she started to become a, law, a legal journalist, writing about legal affairs. And from that a point, she was now able to slowly move into the direction of becoming a writer, writing about anything that she loves. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Slow, simple, realistic steps towards getting back to what you were meant to be doing. Very good. Uh, so you mentioned um, earlier that the mentor, finding a mentor is an important part of gaining mastery. Um, and you give some great uh, examples of individuals who basically had to work their tails off in order to get the attention and time of a mentor. Um, any advice to folks out there who are looking to find a mentor, um, what they can do to successfully get that attention in that time? Because, you know, I, I typically from my experience, people who you seek out to be your mentor, their time and resource and knowledge is valuable. Um, so how do you, I guess, convince them or persuade them to spend that time and share their knowledge with you? Well, um, there's a lot of things to go over there. I mean, um, I tell people that you don't want to look for a mentor until you're a little bit ready. Uh, it's got to be a, a situation where both sides have something to give. Obviously, the mentor has a lot to give. But do you, you have something to give? It can't be completely one-sided. In other words, you can't be someone fresh out of college with no skills, no background, no real discipline, nothing but your charm and your smile. That's not enough. The, the mentor has his or her self-interest, and they're not going to simply take the time to, to work in that relationship if you have nothing to offer. And so you want to at least, if you're aiming at uh, somebody that you would like to be your mentor, you have to maybe at least have a couple, uh, some experience under your belt. You have to be able to come to them and show that you have a track record, that you are disciplined, that you have a good work ethic, 
that you have references, uh, that you have some skills to offer them um, that could save them time. Everybody wants to sa be saved, have time saved for them. That's the number one thing in this world today. If somebody, like I had a mentor, uh, Ryan, I'm sorry, an apprentice, Ryan Holiday, who's now, as you know, has mm -hmm. become on to become a very successful uh, writer, etc. Uh, Ryan approached me. Uh, he was a fan of my books, and um, it became very clear very early on uh, that he was uh, had real skills. He had skills. He fixed my Wikipedia page. I could see that he loved books, and he was he could re read and re do the research and stuff. And so I said, "Yeah, sure. I, you're going to save me time. You're going to make me look better." And it turned into a, a great relationship. So you want to be able to show someone before you even attempt it that you have some skills that mesh with them and that's going to be mutually beneficial. So that's number one, right off the bat. Number two, don't be afraid of contacting people that you think are powerful or that you, oh, you could go, well, I could never, you know, Mark Cuban, I could never be his apprentice. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, that's not necessarily a good example, but <laughs> you'd be surprised that people um, who are in positions of power are, are actually interested in having a, 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 an apprentice, a disciple, or whatever you want to call it. It's a very satisfying relationship if it works out well. So don't be afraid of, of, of pursuing these people um, if you have something to offer. But the other thing I tell people is don't look for the biggest name out there. Um, let's say, let's just say for an example, uh, you, you want to be a writer. Uh, and you're looking for someone to apprentice under, don't go for the, the biggest name or somebody that's a celebrity. Go for the person that meshes. The, you say five or ten years down the road, that's who I want to be. I want to be like that person. They're doing something that, that um, appeals to me, that appeals to me as an individual. I, I show in the book a woman, Yoki Matsuoka, who's a robotics engineer, who finds herself suddenly at MIT, a very weird conservative environment, and there's one professor there who's a rebel, uh, Rodney Brooks. He's like the bad boy of the department, and she's always been the bad girl. She's always been a rebel, rebel, anti-authoritarian. That's who she says he's going to be my mentor because he fits my spirit, and I want to be like Rodney Brooks. And so it, it ended up being a great relationship. So those are a few important tips. Wait until you have something to offer. Don't be afraid of people that you think are too powerful. You'd be surprised. Um, and find a good fit. It's, it's almost like your second parent. So it, they have to fit you psychologically and emotionally, and they have to be someone that you really truly admire and want to be like in five or ten years. That's great advice. Uh, here's a question that I just remembered I was going to ask. Um, so you talk a lot how passion is sort of the fuel that drives uh, this whole process. But I, I, it's, I know you read the blogs and stuff on being successful, and it's all about finding your passion, finding your passion, and doing what you're passionate about. And I know lots of people who are passionate about what they do, but they never seem to take productive action. Like They never seem to get anywhere with that passion. I mean, what, what are they doing wrong, and how do you harness that passion you have um, so it's productive? Well, I'd have to hear what the basic scenario is. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, some people will say to me, uh, well, let's say you love basketball, but you're born five foot six. What are you going to do? You have a passion for basketball, but you don't have the physical capability. Uh, or you have a passion for music, but you weren't born a Mozart. And maybe that's a little bit of what you're talking about there. They're, they're trying it. They're passionate, but they're spinning their wheels. They're not getting anywhere. And the thing is, it's not a, a direct one-in-one correlation. Like, I love basketball. I've got to be a basketball mm-hmm. player. There are people like... Um, uh, Jeff Van Gundy, who's very short and obviously not physically capable, he became a coach. And that's the area that he ended up channeling his great love of basketball. Other people may not end up becoming a Mozart, but they be- could become a very good teacher, uh, instructor, or, or something else. There's some mm-hmm. other way of applying it. So if you're spinning your wheels, you're passionate, but you're not getting anywhere, you, there's probably a bad fit going on. You probably... Need, doing something that you love, but you're not, you don't necessarily have um, the right materials for doing it exactly the way that you want. Um, I I really do maintain um, that if you're deeply engaged in something um, and you're really committed to it and you're putting in the time and you're practicing with focus, there's, there's almost nothing that's going to stop you. There's almost nothing that's going to derail you. Um, and what you find with a lot of people is that they're, they're dilettantes. They, they get passionate about something for a year, and they do it, and then they, they, ha- they, come, they hit a wall, and they don't move past that wall. And so they try something else, and they're passionate, and then they hit another wall. And you look after 10 years, and you see the zigzagging cur- path that they've followed. Well, what makes somebody move past the wall is that they really, really... Are, love what they're doing. They they have a good fit, and they're able to to move past the, the frustration and the bad moments and the criticism because they really are committed. They have to get. They want to become proficient at it. They want to discover something about the world, and they'll put in. They'll move past it and go to two, three, four, five years of working at it. So I really think that if we boiled it down, we could find that these people. Who aren't getting anywhere? They ha- they're either avoiding the problem, they're afraid of moving past the wall, they're afraid of really being successful, and they're being dilettantes. They're they're putting their feet in the water just a little bit here and over there and over there, and then they can say, "Well, I never really made it in life. I didn't, you know, this this stopped me or that stopped me." No, you didn't. You weren't serious enough. You 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 don't know yourself well enough to figure out exactly what you need to be doing. Um, is there an individual, cause you highlight a whole bunch of individuals in your book, um, do a lot of biographical sketches. Is there one in particular that stuck out to you the most as, I don't know, um, uh, best representing the, the path towards mastery or the journey towards mastery? Well, they're all great for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say to pick one out that I think is, is, is exemplary in an interesting way would be Michael Faraday. Um, he's a, the greatest, perhaps the greatest experimental scientist of the 19th century. Uh, but what's so interesting about him, he was English, um, was that he was born in poverty, the son of a blacksmith in, in London, uh, the turn of the 19th century. Somebody like that had 
literally zero percent chance of making it. Well, we can't say zero, but we can say zero point zero 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 one percent chance of making it in England at that time, because you couldn't become a scientist in England unless you had gone to a university, which would then allow you to have access to laboratories and other scientists and libraries. And somebody born as the son of a blacksmith can't even go to, he, he never even had formal schooling at all. So there's no chance that he could become a scientist. But he felt like he was destined for something great in that field from very early on. And, and he managed Let me see here. Um, hello? Hello. Yeah, I, I saw you broke up there. there. Yeah, I'm here now. Can you hear me? Hello? Hello, hello? Yeah, I can hear you. All right, you, you, you broke up on yeah, that last little bit. You. Okay. I can hear you. Okay, let me see. Something's going on here. We're oh, getting okay. bad connection. Can I can hear you now. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you broke up that last that last little yeah, bit. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay. Well, uh, so what he what Michael Faraday did was he got an apprenticeship at a bookstore, at a bookbinding store, um, that allowed him to have access to the kinds of books that nobody else could have access to, and that allowed him to read all about science, um, and develop a real discipline and skill completely on his own, which then led to um, getting contact people, the, the access to, to lectures from scientists, on and on and on. I described the chain of events that eventually led him to become apprentice for one of the great scientists in England at the time. But the idea is that uh, there's nothing genetic. He's the son of a very poor blacksmith in a family where nobody else excelled. You can't possibly give me a genetic explanation for the genius of Michael Faraday. His inventions, by the way, were some of the most important in the 19th century and led to uh, laid the foundation for Albert Einstein's discoveries and for the invention of the first motor, electric motor, etc. There's no way you could take Michael Faraday and say, oh, it's genetic. He was born with a larger brain. He was destined for, for this, etc. It's absolutely 100% impossible because the guy was born the son of a blacksmith. It was sheer persistence and clarity of what he wanted and clarity of how to get there and sheer drive and willpower. And so that's why I love uh, that example. And he has all of the steps, an incredible apprenticeship, had the perfect mentor, had very high social intelligence, and then became very creative and a, and a true master. Very cool. So last question, um, Robert, uh, before I let you go. Um, besides buying your book, uh, what can a man do today to begin his path towards mastery? Well, you know, um, the, the, it all begins with that ultimate, most important step of clarity about yourself. Um, there's a couple things I would say about that. Uh, generally, I've been consulting for years and I've worked with people now also since the book came out and I will say that oftentimes men have a harder time with that introspective process of knowing who they are um, a lot of the guys that I talk to 
they're in their 20s or 30s and they say, I really don't know, have any idea about what it was I was meant to accomplish, almost as if um, doubting the truth of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the truth is they've become very distant from themselves. They're very alienated from who they are. And it's not some touchy-feely, new-age kind of crap that I'm peddling here. It's actually really, really important. It's what makes you powerful and successful. If you really want power, don't think of it as something spiritual. Think of it as something very practical and realistic. And there's a process you can go through to getting more in touch with yourself. And that means uh, starting a journal and thinking about what it was when you were a child that you were drawn to, thinking about the fields and subjects that excite you when you open a newspaper, thinking about what you hate in life. It's going to take three months, four months of some thinking. It doesn't come overnight. You don't suddenly wake up and say, God, this is what I was meant to do. You have to go through a process, but the process is very important and very rewarding. The other thing I would say is you're, think of it as like you're connecting to the past. Um, masters are somebody, are people in history who we celebrate for being highly creative. Uh, a thousand years ago, these were mostly men who worked with their hands. These were the people who built great cathedrals. These were the masons um, and architects and designers. They were also in other fields building things and Sometimes they were building a, a religion or a book or whatever it was. Um, and they ended up becoming incredibly versed and masters of their field. Well, that's the tradition, the past you were going to. As a man, we, we like to make things. We like to build things. We used to like to build things with our hands. And we don't live in that kind of world anymore. But, but that's what makes you great. That's what you're tapping in to something very deep and, and um, physiological about what makes us men. And it's the fact that we like to make things, we like to make things well, and that per- pertains to a business, to a book, um, to a, a political party, whatever it is, you're building something. And to build something, you have to know how to build it well. And to build it well, you have to go through the process I described. So think of yourself in that way. Um, and think of yourself as connecting to this deep, deep tradition of mastery that I describe in the book. Very good. Well, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. Robert Green, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brad. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Our guest today was New York Times bestselling author Robert Green. He is the author of the book Mastery, and you can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, stay manly.